uh, invite Ron Tenby in a minute to the stage. We're going to continue on our Saints and Sinners series. We've just got a little bumper video while we get things set up, and then it'll be over to you, Ron. Thanks. Well, good morning, church. Um, my wife and Helen and I, um, and I come across from Ranfurly every Sunday to be with you because we think that this is the best church in central Otago. <laughs> now, let me explain. In the 41 years we've been married, we have travelled around and lived in numerous places. And the first question is, what church will we go to? So we've gone to various denominations but there's certain criteria that we have. One is that the church believes that the Bible is the inspired word of God. The second is that the leadership is servant leadership that tries to grow people. We also like an enthusiastic worship team, and we like an interest in overseas missions. And so when I look at you, I'm reminded of your faith, your faithfulness, your generosity, and your friendliness. So I'm proud to call this place my spiritual home. So just in case no one's told you that recently, you're really great. And unfortunately, not every church is as good as this one. So it's my privilege to talk to you today about a saint. But before I do, I just want to tell you that before retiring to Ranfurly, I was involved in education. That was my career. And uh, I started as a primary school teacher and then I became a computer tutor and finished up as a business tutor. But I still remember Teachers College and what we had, one thing that we did that stands out is we had bit subjected to months of theory and then we were let loose in schools and we were all excited about that. And then we came back and we had a debrief and one young woman talked about her experience being on duty. So she was on the playground, and after a while, a little child came up and, and said to her, Please, miss, someone's being mean to me. And she wasn't sure what to say. And a while later, another kid came up and said, Please, miss, someone's being mean to me. And it seemed like the entire playground was coming to her and saying, Please, miss, someone's being mean to me. And after a while, she got a bit frustrated with this, and then finally there was a tug on her sleeve and the little child says, Please, miss, someone's being mean to me. So she turned around and said, Well, life's not fair. And I never forgot that. Because there are instances where we all feel that life's not fair. And today we're looking at Asaph, who was a real saint. But he also went through this time of when he thought that life wasn't fair. So before I, we get into him, uh, his story, which we're going to find in Psalm 73, just wanted to do a quick revision of his background and the background he, wa he um, was part of as a Levite. And you will remember the, the, the tabernacle, and it had some furniture, 
And they, the Israelites carried this through the wilderness and threw into the promised land. And it had a number of bits of furniture. There was an, a, an altar outside. Then there was this big bronze um, bowl where the, the priest would wash the blood off. And inside there was the holy place where the Levites and priests could go. It had the candlestick and an incense burner and some showbread. And then there was the Holy of Holies, which had the Ark of the Covenant in there, and only the high priest could go in once a year. So that, was, that Ark of the Covenant was a symbol of God's presence. And one of the things that God was trying to communicate to the Israelites was that he is holy, and that sin makes a separation between them and him. And there has to be atonement for sin. Now, when they got into the Promised Land, they were surrounded by other nations who have a diff had a different view of what a God is. To the, to the Philistines, to the Canaanites, a God was a supernatural being localised to one place, and he would, that God would do a couple of things. One, if you wanted something from him, you had to bribe him with an offering. And secondly, if something bad was happening, you had to placate him with an offering. So that was their view of what a God was like. But what the law of Moses was trying to communicate was that Yahweh was holy and he wasn't localised to any particular region. He was the God who created everything. And so there was this influence of these different cultures. And you find this in Judges, that there are patterns of the Israelites being influenced by the people around them, and when things turned to custard, they would turn to Yahweh and pray for help, and he delivered. But one day, they were fighting the Philistines, they had this bright idea, hey, why don't we take the ark with us, and then we're bound to win? So they, that's what they did, they took the ark, and when the Philistines heard the ark come, have came to the camp, because all the people, all the Israelites were cheering like mad. They said, hey, the, their God's coming to the camp. We better better fight harder than we have before. So they did, and they won. And they captured the ark, and they took it to one of their temples in Ashdod. And that, their God was a, an idol who was half man and half fish, called Dagon. So they parked the ark of the covenant in there. And then they came back the next morning... And they discovered that Dagon was face down in front of the ark. And they thought, this is strange. So they propped him up again. And the next day they came back, and Dagon was not only face down, but bits of him were cut off. And they thought, this is weird. And then things got worse. A plague, or if you like, a pandemic broke out. And they got, um, some translations say boils, others say tumours. And some commentators think it was bubonic plague. So they're going down with this, this horrible disease, and some of them are dying from it. And they're saying, look, this is not good. So they endured this for some months, and then things got worse. They got a plague of mice. Now, I don't particularly like mice, and I've seen some videos of when the Australians have plagues of mice, and so it look, looks horrible. So they've had all this. So they, what, what are we going to do? So they thought, I know. We'll ship it off to one of the other Philistine cities. So they sent it to Gath. So they got tumours and boils and death and mice. 
And they, after a while, they had enough, and they said, well, we'll send it to Ekron. Well, the Ekronites, when they, they saw it, they weren't too happy. And when they got the plague and people were dying, they said, look, let's get rid of this thing. Let's send it back. So they had a bit of a discussion amongst their leaders, and they decided, well, if we, we've obviously sort of upset this Hebrew god, so we'll, we'll send an offering with it as well. So they made little gold tumours and five little gold mice and put them on, on this cart as well, because that was their idea of a god. You, you can either bribe them or you can placate them. And we stick it in a, in a, um, on an ox cart and send the ox cart off. We, we won't guide it. It'll, we'll see where the oxen go. And if they go straight to the Hebrews, we know this, this is God behind it. But if it sort of wanders around and comes back to us, we know it's a coincidence. Well, those oxen went straight off to a place called Bethshemeth. And when it got there, the people of Bethshemeth were quite pleased. The ark had come back. But they didn't treat it with due reverence. Because remember, this symbolises the presence of a holy God. So some of them peeked inside and were struck down dead. So they thought, ooh, this is not good. I know what we'll do. And they actually did what the Philistines did. They shipped it off somewhere else to a place called Kiriath-Jerim. Actually, they invited the people of Kiriath-Jerim to come and collect it because they didn't want anything more to do with it. So it sat there for 20 years. So just a wee diagram. Um, so it went from Ashdod, or that region, to, to Beth Shemeth, and then to Kiriath-Jerim, and you can see Jerusalem off to the, in the corner. Now, during this time, David arose as a leader. You know, he killed Goliath and then he got involved in a war with Saul and so on. And eventually he became king. And he decided, that when he became king, he lived seven years in Hebron, he decided to make Jerusalem his capital. And then he thought, I know what I'll do. I'll bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. So he, got, he rounded up some priests and Levites, and one of those Levites who he rounded up was Asaph. And they went to Kiriath Jerim, and they got an ox cart, and they put the Ark of the Covenant on the ox cart and headed off to Jerusalem. Partway through, it got a bit bumpy, and a guy called Uzzah put his hand out to, to stabilise the Ark, and God struck him dead. And David was angry with God. He, said, he thought this was over the top. So they parked it at the nearest farm, which turned out to belong to a guy called Obed-Edom. And they went back to Jerusalem. And David was a bit miffed because he had all these thousands of people lined up to have this big celebration. But during the three months the ark was at Obed-Edom's house, Obed-Edom was blessed. Meanwhile... David did a bit of research. Why is God so angry? And he discovered in the law of Moses there were certain rules about how you move to the ark. So he, he did, while he was researching this, he built a tent, it probably doesn't look like this one, in <coughs> Jerusalem to receive the ark. And then he arranged for some priests and some Levites to bring the ark in. You see, in the law of Moses it said 
that only Levites could move the ark, that it had to be covered with a cloth, and on the, the Ark of the Covenant there would be sockets, and which poles go through, and those poles were, going, were poles that go on the shoulders of the Levites. And the Levites had to get themselves ceremonially clean before they even picked the thing up. So they did it the way God had instructed. So they were able to, to get the Ark into Jerusalem. And there, David chose Asaph to be in charge of the music. And his job was to organise a roster so that every day there are people worshipping God. This is taken, these verses are taken from the contemporary English version, so hence the strange language they've called the Ark of the Covenant, which is a bit of a mouthful, the sacred chest, which it was, it's just a, a box, but a sacred one. So David also chose a couple of Asaph's mates, Jedithan and Heman, to assist Zadok at Gibeon, where the sacred tent or the tabernacle was. So Gibeon, which is a few kilometres northwest of Jerusalem, is where the tent was and the other daily sacrifices still happened, whereas the sacred box or the Ark of the Covenant was in Jerusalem. Now, the question that I've had is, if when Asaph was told, right, organise this worship roster every day, what did they sing? Well, by this stage, they had the Psalm 90, which is the one that Moses wrote, and it was about 300 years old. And David had been busy writing psalms. They had at least 40 of his. So they used those to worship. And when you think about it, any good musician after a while probably gets a little bit tired of singing other people's songs. So after a while, Asaph thought, what about me? I could write a psalm. So with a quick overview of the 150 psalms that we have, David wrote 73 of them. He was a major contributor. Now the psalms are not arranged in chronological order. Well, roughly they are. But David wrote 73. And a lot of them, um, when you read the explanation that's on the top, normally in fine print, tell you all the situation that occurred, uh, explaining why he wrote it. The, but the second most person for writing psalms was Asaph. He has 12 to his credit. After that, you've got the sons of Korah. They were another sub-clan, and they wrote about 10. Then you've got Jedithan, who's got three. And you've got Solomon with two, and then you've got He-Man and Ethan and Moses on Psalm 90. And then there's about 50 that are un whose authors are unknown. But some of them obviously are written by exiles. You remember the, the one that Boney M made fa famous by the rivers of Babylon and so on. So these... Levites, these professional musicians whose job it was to praise God, wrote a lot of these psalms. Now, after uh, when, sorry, when Asaph was appointed, he was leading this worship team and getting to write psalms, and he was doing it for 33 years. So, now, to be a Levite, you've got to be 
uh, 30 years old because by then you've settled down and I guess you're a bit more mature. And you've also learnt a number of instruments. So he was 30 years when he started, when he saw Uzzah killed, and he led the team for 33 years. And then when David died and Solomon became the king, it took 20 years to build the temple. So by this stage, by my calculations, he's about 83 years old. And then something happened. Uh, Solomon decided to move the chest, which was in Jerusalem, to the temple. And he was going to have a big celebration, and he timed it when the festival of shelters was occurring so that everybody would, be, would see and hear what this is about. So Asaph, Heman, and Jedithan, they were standing on the left side of the altar playing their cymbals and their harps and other stringed instruments. And Asaph's fav uh, favourite instrument was cymbals, hence the picture. And then something happened. As they were praising the Lord and playing music, they were singing, The Lord is good and his love never ends. And they were singing that over and over, and they were probably into harmonies and all sorts of things. And there was about 288 uh, Levites there singing in the choir, and they had got another 120 priests who were blowing trumpets. And so it was a really mighty worship service. And suddenly, a cloud filled the temple. And the Lord's glory was in that cloud, and the light from it was so bright that the priests could not stand to do their work. This was an amazing occurrence that had not happened before, and Asaph witnessed it. So when he went home that night, and his wife said, how did the dedication go, Asaph? He would have said, yeah, that was awesome. The glory of God came down, and everybody was just, just blown away. But the other thing was, he felt vindicated. He had been worshipping God and serving God for decades, and finally, he felt the presence of God in an awesome way that most people don't get to see. But after that, something else happened. Asaph, who had spent his life serving God and worshipping God and singing about his, the faithfulness and the goodness of God, started to look at other people. And he writes in Psalm 73, and Psalm 73 differs from his other psalms. And in his other psalms, he talks about God dealing with the nation of Israel. But here, Psalm 73 is a very personal one. He says, I almost stumbled and fell because it made me jealous to see proud and evil people and to watch them prosper. He said, they never have to suffer. They stay healthy. And they don't have troubles like everyone else. Now maybe at his age he was having a few health problems. Or maybe he was having a few troubles. But he was not happy. So this was his life's not fair moment. He had been loyal. He had been faithful. He had done everything right. He was honest. He had served God day in, day out. And these other people were cheats and swindlers, and they seemed to have everything. And they had a lot more stuff than he had. 
Now, I've searched the internet to find an image to express how he felt, and this is what I came up with. Right? <laughs> Our friend, Grumpy Cat. That's how he felt. And he wanted to do what all of us want to do when we think that life's not fair. He wanted to go and sulk. And when you sulk, what do you want to do? You want to tell yourself over and over again that life's not fair. And if someone will ask you, you will tell them over and over again why life's not fair. And for us Christians, we will tell God that life isn't fair and ask him, or sometimes demand, that he do something about it. And this is what Asaph did. He told God that life wasn't fair. And then he listened for an answer. And do you know what he heard? Nothing. He had reached a stage where his spiritual radar had switched off. But he couldn't go and sulk like he wanted to because when he checked, or first, he got bitter, I should say, first. Now, bitter is not a word we use today. We use it of bad coffee. But it's not a, we don't really say people are bitter because we're more sophisticated than that. We actually have borrowed a German word, schadenfreude. This may be new to some of you, but if you want to impress people, toss this word around. <laughs> it's a compound word made up of, of two words. The, first, the second part is freud, or freuder, which means joy. The first one is a verb, schaden, to damage. So when you put it together, it's the joy you feel when someone is damaged. For example, suppose you are at work and a, and a job comes up and for you it's a promotion and you apply because you know you are the best person for the job and you interview and you interview extremely well and then they go and give the job to an outsider. You feel disappointed but after a while you're in the um, tea room and someone says, hey, you know that new guy who got appointed and that job that you should have had? He's, he's stuffed up. And the boss has really chewed him out. You go, oh, the boss has chewed him out? <laughs> because you're glad that they're suffered. Right? It's called schadenfreude. Now the word has become so popular that the, the media is onto it. Here's one called schadenfreude at sea. The web is watching with glee as the Russian oligarchs' yachts are seized. Why? Because we think, why should that cheating Russian oligarch, who, who through his political connections and his embezzlement and whatever, have this super yacht worth hundreds of millions and I've got nothing? So really schadenfreude is a form of envy and jealousy except we've dressed it up with a fancy word. So um, Asaph was feeling miserable. He was feeling jealous. He was feeling bitter. He was feeling angry. And then he looked at the worship roster and saw a worship roster that probably he had written that the next day he was on. And he thought, oh, I've got to go and worship God and lead the team, but I don't feel like it. 
I want to bunk. But he couldn't. So he went and he led his team in worship. And as he worshipped, something happened. As he worshipped God, even though he didn't feel like it, that spiritual fog that he had around him, that bitterness just melted away. And this is what he wrote. Then I went to your temple and I understood what will happen to my enemies. They will be terrified, suddenly swept away and no longer there. He realized that they would be like a bad dream that you forget, whereas his destiny was to be with God forever. He said, once I was bitter and brokenhearted and I was stupid and ignorant, I treated you like an animal would. He said, I'm like an insensitive beast. His spiritual radar had broken. He could not sense God at all. And so he sums it up by saying, it is good for me to be near you. Some versions say, more poetically, the nearness of God is my good. So this morning, we can choose how close we get to God. We can decide whether we're going to, to do it or not. But there's a problem. And a few hundred years later, Isaiah came up with this. He saw a vision of God and he said, Then I cried out, I'm doomed. Everything I say is sinful and so are the words of everyone around me. Yet I've seen the King, the Lord, all-powerful. He suddenly realised he was a sinful man before a holy God. Now all along, God had been trying to teach the Israelites that he was holy and you needed a sacrifice of blood in order to cleanse our sin and so you can get close to him. But a few weeks ago, we celebrated Easter. And that veil, which one that Asaph was never allowed to get it past, suddenly ripped in two. And suddenly, when at the resurrection, we had access through the faith in Jesus Christ to God. Now the writer of the Hebrews said this, So whenever we are in need, we should come bravely before the throne of our merciful God. There we will be treated with undeserved grace, and we will find help. So this morning, our situation is that we are not estranged from God. We can choose to be close to him. Now, it's possible to come to church and be thinking of, I don't know, last night's rugby, or what you're going to have for dinner, or or today. Or you can be focused upon what we're here for. And we can actually learn some things from Asaph's experience. And the first one is, don't withdraw and sulk. If you feel that life's not fair, still come to church. You can sit at the back, you can fold your arms, you can glare at the preacher, we don't care. Right? <laughs> speaking of someone who's been on the podium a few times, I normally look around at this for the smiling faces, you know, one in this block, one in that one, one in that one. But, if, but when you think about it, the reason we're here is because we have some faith. And if each one of us has got some faith, then this becomes a faith-filled atmosphere. And it's one in which the Holy, where Jesus' name is honoured, 
in one in which the Holy Spirit can move and can bring healing and can bring revelation. You know, if we take a small step towards God, he will take a giant leap towards you. And also, another thing that happened is that Asaph got revelation when he was in there worshipping God. And in one of David's psalms, he said, In thy light we see light. As you get close to God, he will give you revelation into your situation, whatever it is. And what we should do is never stop declaring God's goodness. 500 years ago, the Presbyterians, who are not known for being enthusiastic worshippers these days, asked this question, what is the chief end of man? What's life all about? What's the purpose of us? And they said, to glorify God. And that's still the case today. So very shortly, Craig's going to lead us in communion. And if we've got the right attitude, I know we heard the word thankfulness already, when someone was praying for the offering, and I've heard that word a lot of times in this church, thankfulness, gratitude. But you know, there is something called the joy of our salvation, which we can also have. And if we get close to God, then he will bless us. It's that simple. And yet what's even better is you don't have to wait till Sunday. So any time during the week when you feel you're being overwhelmed, you can worship God. Now, if you're like me, you have trouble singing in tune. But I've discovered that if I've got a pair of earphones on, I can plug into a YouTube video and worship along with the band, and no one even knows. Or you can sing in the shower, or you can sing in your car, or if you're a farmer, you can sing to your sheep. Right? You can worship God anywhere, anytime. And as you get close to him, he will bless you. Thanks very much, Ron. That was really insightful and really encouraging. Particularly having a bit of a deep dive into Asaph as a person, you know, we see his name on the Psalms, but we're like, you know, who is this guy? And, and Ron's given us a really fascinating insight into him. I suppose what I like about Asaph is that he is a bit of a historian, um, and I'm very much a, a pretend historian, but... A lot of his songs, a lot of his psalms, and, and Ron's dived into Psalm 73, but there's you know, 11 others. A lot of those psalms really remember and reflect the Jewish history. And particularly, um, Asaph reminds his singers that God has worked for his people in the past. And so if you read through some of those other psalms that Ron's hinted at, you know, Asaph writes about the miraculous escape of the Jewish people out of slavery, uh, out of Egypt. Uh, he talks about God righting the wrongs. He, he talks about God raising up rulers and restoring blessings and basically how God works for the good of his people. And so let me read to you from Psalm 77, one of Asaph's psalms. This is how he puts it. We'll put that verse up Ephraim, on the screen. Uh, Asaph writes this, I recall all that you have done. I remember your wonderful deeds of long ago. And so this morning we have the opportunity to remember, to reflect on how God has worked for us. We're going to share communion together and perhaps that is the greatest reminder of what God has done 
for us. The, this is the greatest of his wonderful deeds which he did for us long ago. So if you're not quite sure what communion is, very simply, it's just a reminder that 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ, as the Son of God, uh, gave up his life so that we could live. He died on a cross. He paid the price. He took the place of punishment which we deserved. And he made a way for us to connect with God. And I think that is very um, simple, that selfless sacrifice of Jesus, but so profound in what it offers us. So... Uh, as Christians, this is an opportunity for us to remember and reflect on God's love for us. So when you're ready, uh, there's three tables to the front.